Hi, welcome to the IOTICS podcast. Here we're talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension ours, a better place. We'll explore how they're bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges and deliver real-world impacts. I'm Ali Nicol, and my guest today is Rich Walker. Rich is a data and analytics leader for government and public sector. I found our discussion inspiring. Rich is evangelical about the role technology can play in looking after the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged in our society. He talks about the storytelling of data and the moral imperative to make a difference as technology accelerates around us, which means that we have to do things differently if we're going to be able to capitalize and if we're going to look after the people that we absolutely should. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you're inspired by what he has to say. Rich, thank you for joining us. Um, one of the things that I see as like recurring themes through both your writing, your posts, what you do, interviews I've seen of you, is this data and decisions mm-hmm. as two key things. It's been like 15 years of you getting value from data. Like, talk, talk me a little bit through that, because while data's now the zeitgeist and, and brilliant, I'm almost certain it wasn't 15 years ago uh, or so. So tell me a little bit about that journey. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, data certainly didn't have the new oil linked to it as, as you know, as part of its, of its story at that point in time. Um, and actually, where I started my career at the Greater London Authority, data was pretty much an exhaust product, right? So it was you collected data because you delivered a service. You didn't think to do anything with the data. You never looked at the data. In fact, it was a cost center, right? Somebody somebody in IT has got to get a server to store all the data. Nobody really thought about the value in the data itself. And at that time, I think what we were very good at was reporting on what the data said. So people these days would say that's descriptive statistics, right? Yeah, absolutely. We said, oh, something went up, something went down. we didn't really get to grips with all of the different components that we now see around data now that there is the zeitgeist that you talk yep. about. So we just we pumped these things out. And the only person or thing that would get any value from that, I used to think, was an alien that lands on Earth and wants to know what, <laughs> wants to know what London was like in 2005, right? Um, and, and that wasn't where I wanted to be. So my fascination was there is so much insight in that data that we're all collecting not just the gla you know the every organization in london is collecting data how do we create the right ecosystem to get the value from it and and what i mean was the data being used i i mean i, I don't want to tell tales but it's 15 years ago now like you were generating these insights was that landing internally for decision makers or, or was it, it no so I, shouting I, into a void? I would say it, it's all personality dependent, which is probably something we will come back to. Right. So, so you would find great mayoral advisors who were very quantitatively minded and would want to know what the data was telling them about social exclusion in London and why are we so polarised in terms of the whole sort of cheek by jowl narrative of wealth next to abject poverty, right? So you'd have people who really did want to get into the numbers and you'd have others, um, the mayors themselves at times, who who would you know, really want the numbers to support the policy that they'd selected. So, if right. you, were th- you know, you, you, you sort of think about evidence-based policymaking, sometimes you'd have policy-based evidence-making. Yeah, so we're back in the uh, 
damn lies and statistics uh, type mode. And I think it was fascinating the way you put uh, that at that stage about data, because recently we've seen the defense industry, um, the 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 disparate link between sort of data being seen as a strategic asset at like a C-suite level. Yeah. And it was described to me as a gaseous byproduct <laughs> at the operations level. You know, like yeah. data is generated by us doing our daily jobs, but it's not something that we think about. And yet you kind of had leadership saying, no, no, d- data is the new oil. Data is the strategic asset. Data is the future we're going to build services on. Yeah. Um, but that link wasn't there. Has that also been the, true in the public it's sector? Bit, yeah. I mean, that's so I one of the things that I did that I'm probably without sounding too full of hubris, most proud about in my career was help the Met Police get their head around what they needed to do with data. Now, if you're a frontline police person, relatively early in your career, um, dealing with an incident out in the field, you have no semblance of value for the data that you're collecting. And actually what we saw when we started to look at some of the data points was really a flagrant disregard for the value in the data, right? <laughs> so you would find that you had a disproportionate amount of people who were under four and a half foot tall because the the method of selecting the height when they were inputting the data was a drop down. So they literally oh God, could, right. you know, would not scroll down. They just go, oh, well, it won't matter and, and pop that value in. Um, and so uh, I think a theme of my career really has been and people now call this data literacy. But 10 years ago, it was, how do we get people to give a monkeys um, about what they're doing with the data and how they collect it and what the value back to them would be? Um, and we, yeah, plenty of examples of how we've tried to illustrate that imperfectly, I think, at times. Um, but th- for the public sector to really drive value from its data, it has to get that feedback loop right so that people doing their job might be a social care worker, might be a nurse, might be a, you know, oncologist. They have to understand the value of their actions when they're collecting and then interpreting that data. And one of the things I, I've heard you talk on before around the data literacy bit is the kind of stories mm. and the storytelling of that value. And it's something I'm really interested in because it's something that actually in some of the uh, industries you outline, you know, healthcare, oncologists, doctors, uh, the police, like a lot of the people involved on the front line are natural storytellers about what they see and how it works and how it operates. And, the, and they might not think about it. They might not have the data literacy, but they see the patterns around them. Yeah. Have you experienced or had thoughts on how you kind of bring that storytelling to people or enable them to bring their storytelling back to the data I guess yeah so so what you're sort of a, describing um, in my mind is this role of uh, the data broker or the data translator so somebody who can go in when when I do operating model designs which I've done you know 10 15 of across the public sector you you find that there's always this disconnect so the business the people that you've just described on the front line who are delivering these services will go oh we have no idea what they can do in this data thing right and the data people will go well i have no idea what they want (laughs) and and never the two ends shall meet right you have this impasse um and so i've always said that one of the things we when i draw the operating model it's always a sort of a thin layer on the right hand side of a slide but it's the most important piece if you can find those people who can do the translation between what's happening in the world and keep asking why you know the five whys it's a classic business technique but it works so well with data because it tells you where you need to go and look. 
within the data to get an answer that might be useful to them to actually make a decision. And I think that's the that's the real nub of the issue, actually, when we look across any of the sectors that I specialise in around government and public sector is how do you join those two people up so that they're having the same sort of conversation and they each understand what their value is? And I would just give you one example. So um, we took something called the Cardiff model um, when I was at the GLA. So the Cardiff model was pioneered by a professor in Cardiff University who looked at how can you use violent crime data and how can you share it with uh, A&E and the ambulance services such that, and, and how can you critically share back, right, such that you're able to, to get to places where some of the worst and most acute incidents are happening, right? So what you would have is, you take when we tried to deploy it in London, you've got an estate in Hackney, the police, no go, right? If somebody gets stabbed in the thigh and they've got blood spurting yeah. from that archery, they're going to they're gonna phone an ambulance, <laughs> yeah. right? So the ambulance knows that it went and it's got a rough idea of why it went. A&E have to deal with it when they come thundering through the front door. The police naturally sort of have a bit of a blind spot to that. So actually, if you can start to share and triangulate that data, right. then you can have a positive impact on the outcome, which is obviously to avoid people coming in on a Friday night with yeah. with a stab wound. So that, that bringing together of different organizations and how they share, um, so not just enabling the right questions to be asked or, or the right questions to be answered and the, and the translation, but that work between organizations is fascinating. And and my understanding is that having been at the GLA, which obviously covers a lot of this, you then moved on to KPMG yeah. to kind of take it up a level because they obviously have huge uh, practice across uh, public sector and, and governmental. We was part of that journey looking at those larger interconnectedness and, and, and stories? It was. So sort of when I moved across was, uh, going back now, 2014. Um, and 2015, 16 was when we saw a huge amount of emphasis back on sort of devolution, decentralized models of public service delivery and what at the time was ubiquitously referred to as public sector reform. And many areas started to realize that unless they could join up the data across those different organizations they didn't really have a cat in hell's chance of delivering on some of the devolution promises so they'd all been on a train down to Heseltine to say you know can we have some cash devolved and some more powers yeah and then they get it and they're like what are we going to do with it right um and the data held the key so when i joined kpmg a huge amount of what I was doing was working on those multi-agency projects in places like Greater Manchester. So the places that had mayors where they got powers devolved was how do we actually go about solving some of these systemic problems? So things that you and I have spoken about in the past, the information governance, um, for yeah. example. Um, so it's not all technical. You have the, you've got the best tech in the world. You can go and buy that. Can you actually get people to to really see the issue from the same point of view and then agree to share data um, across multiple different organizations. Very, very different challenge. And people who approached it from the technology perspective solely, in my view, destined to fail. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard this mantra before about it's never just the technology. And I'm fascinated by your experience of the information governance piece because they're often seen as a handbrake, you know, not, and not, you know, not to be mean to anyone, but a kind of, yeah, governance says no. 
like we can't do it. H- how do you go about overcoming that? How do you how do you start to work with people and deal with the socio bit of the socio technical yeah. sort of challenge? Oh, great question. Um, again, I don't I don't have a silver bullet for that. I think the things that matter are building consensus around the issue. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I attended many moons ago uh, one of the consultation sessions in Whitehall on uh, the data protection bill. And um, there was an individual in the room who was from the privacy lobby um, who was tearing into Matt Hancock at the time, who had the DCMS role. Um, And what I would say is they handled that brilliantly, the facilitators, because they said, actually... Okay, we understand all of that. So you're so you're great. You're finding loads of problems, loads of legal technicalities that mean we can't share this data. But let's take a step back. Do you agree that we should be as a as a group of public sector organizations, we should be targeting these sorts of outcomes? Yeah. Yes, of course I do. It's you know, it's obvious. Do do you agree that in order to be able to do that, we need to be able to share information with each other? Yes. Okay, so help us given all of your expertise, you didn't join your role as an information governance lead at an NHS trust to stop people achieving the outcomes that they want to achieve. That's that's not how you went in. So how do we create that cultural change, that mindset change that says, actually, my job is to help you do it legally, ethically, and proportionally, right? And that for me is the is the crux but you'll never get anywhere near unless you can build consensus on the outcome that you're trying to achieve otherwise people will say the risk especially post gdpr is too high given the benefit so you need to be absolutely crystal clear on the benefit yeah i think that that focus on because it's, it's i mean it's almost more than a benefit when you're talking about these systemic problems and and how people can come together and collaborate and cooperate to deliver solutions it feels almost a purpose-based call to arms. You know, you're saying, okay, well, you didn't start that job to do to sit there and say no and 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 look at the the fine print. You know, you started presumably because there's a purpose and you you know you believed in something bigger. And I think that's a a fantastic call for how we can address these because far too often I think we're focused on the super near term, right? Yeah. Like the kind of absolutely right. This five seconds can I have access to that data set. No, okay, well then. Yeah, we're done here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we and we saw, didn't we, with COVID, um, that when when the outcome was crystal clear and and sort of undisputable to some extent, so yeah. we we need to shield these individuals. How do we know who to shield? Uh, right. Well, the local authority knows some stuff. The GP knows some stuff. The hospital probably knows some stuff. Oh, and those third sector organisations, they might know some stuff too. Um, how are we going to do all of that? Oh, well, we can't. We can't share the information because of X, Y, and Z. That that was eviscerated by COVID. It was well, we'll share, you know. And at, at, when I was at Agilisys, they built um, platforms that would enable you to share that information in a really sort of dynamic, but also break the glass way. So it wasn't wanton sharing. It yeah. was it was governed by a set of rules, but the threshold that you needed to meet came down. Um, and I think where we need to get to as a sector going forward is a much more balanced view of the risk and the reward. So Dane Caldicott, many years ago, added a, an extra principle that said the duty to share can be as important as the duty to uh, protect. And I, and I think that duty to share, 
alongside you mentioned the kind of legally ethically proportionally kind of aspects now we're in a i'm going to say post pandemic i realize it's you know it hasn't all gone away completely but in a post pandemic world how do we avoid sort of snapping back to you know okay while this was happening it was all fast tracked we were happy there was a recognition there was an immediacy that was required it's very easy always to slip back into our mental models and say okay well how do we best avoid that yeah so i think i think what we have to learn is is the point around crystallizing the purpose so if you look at any data sharing legislation so let's let's dive into the legislation for a second they will always start with any any data protection impact assessment form will start with what's the purpose for the sharing and unless you can be crystal clear on that you may as well not start the the endeavor and the initiative in the yeah. first place right and and it all sound it might sound a little bit motherhood and apple pie but if you can say we are sharing this information between the metropolitan police the homerton hospital the london ambulance service and hackney local authority so that we can achieve this you're already halfway through that challenge if you like because everybody can align around okay well that's a that's a noble if for want of a better yeah. phrase thing to do right um how do we stop people slipping back i think it's about and i used to say this a lot at the time of the gdpr because when i was at kpmg we used to do um, quite a lot of GDPR assessments. Right, and, okay. and, and people would pay you to do them because they go, really bloody scared about this. We could be fined and lose, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I used to say to the data people, this is your one-off epoch moment to get funding to do good stuff with data. Because what did GDPR, GDPR ask you to do? It asked you to understand where all your data lived, know who you were sharing it with, yeah. Understand the purpose for what you were sharing, right? So actually, it was forcing the rest of your organization to see the world like you did as a data person. Brilliant. And I think if you can, and you know, I, I hopefully had some successes with some organizations that I supported at the time, if you can flip that a little bit and say, look, something like GDPR, yes, it's a compliance-based thing, and that's, that's, why, that's how everybody will sell it to you. But actually, it's a springboard and a platform for getting on top of your data as an asset then I think I think you're onto something. And and when you were working with those devolved organisations and working working on the GDPR stuff, how do you start to enable people to think about what purposes might be possible? I mean, because because that kind of yes, if we come together, we could solve for X. But actually, I think in some cases, people aren't clear that they can solve for X. You know, there are the, there are kind of the intractable problems mm-hmm. that that you know are beyond beyond the wit of man to solve. And actually, some of the work you've done is 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 helping people see, actually, this is a solvable problem. Yeah. Let's articulate that purpose and then work back from there, exactly as you exactly as you were saying. So how do you get people to start to see the possibility of doing different things, of, of, of doing something completely different? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. There's a couple of points to that. So the first one is forget about the data to start with. And this is how I've worked in professional services for the last 10 years. You know, going in and saying to somebody, I've got a data platform, can join up all your data <laughs> and, and serve it to you wherever you are. You know, great, all right, but, you know, I've only got 10 jelly beans to spend. Yeah. How many am I going to spend on this data platform versus some new nurses, right? That's the wrong way to think about approaching an organization. And it, and it does, you know, having worked in professional services, it does crystallize your understanding of what really matters to people. Um, 
And where I've landed in my most recent times, and you picked up on this in your intro around data and decisions, is that concept of a value chain. So data is the new oil has been done to death, right? We, we were all aware of that. But fundamentally, it does help because it sort of says there's no value in it until you do something with it. But you've got to see that in a value chain. So it goes data, insight, decision. I put that in bold, you know, blinking lights, yeah. <laughs> action, outcome. Right. So how do we know what decisions we need to take? We have to think about the outcomes we're after. Can we then map those decisions? At that point, we can then say, what data and insight do we need? Because it can be at times, you know, the whole world at the moment is obsessed with generative AI, predictive analytics, all of these buzzwords. Sometimes you don't need that. Actually, a decision could be improved by some descriptive stats that say X percent of these people will end up here. And we've got 10 years of data to show it. Yeah. Right. There'll be others where it's far more complex than that. And the value proposition coming back from building a machine learning model that can predict the risk of an elderly and frail person ending up in A&E is much higher. But also the challenge of doing that, the cost of doing it is higher. So my point here is around if you frame things in the outcomes and the decisions that you're taking, you'll have a very clear idea of the purpose and what data you need and why you need it. That's That's point one. I think the second point on all of that is there are so many legal gateways for data sharing. So I did a project in 2016 with a police force in the West Midlands and we sat down with the information governance lead and all of it was around, oh, well, you can use ACT this in policy this that allows you to do this for this purpose. And this guy who's just like, you know, massive brain obviously could recite and remember all of these acts. And my my thing was, I said to him, how many are there? He said, I don't know. And then he came back to me on the Monday. He said, there's 47 different legal bases that we can use within police legislature, legislature easy for me to say, <laughs> that, you can, that, that you can use to share information. That's just in policing. Imagine health and care. Wow. You know, and that, and that in, in and of itself is both an enabler and a barrier, right? Well, I mean, and that really reminds, there's a, a quote that I heard from Shoshana Zubrov, who was saying, data is the new oil, because like oil, all the, all the trouble starts when you try and get access to it. <laughs> and and uh, one of the things, I mean, yeah, you're at KPMG, you're doing these frameworks, you're doing the decisions, you're having, you know, you're, you're helping people understand the purpose and start to think it through. But you also mentioned the 10 jelly beans bit, like it's often very easy to have the kind of, grand and I'm not I hope I'm not doing a disservice to anyone but the kind of grand overarching professional services this is what good looks like is brilliant and a north star and so on but then helping local government and government some of these public sectors to you know what's the first step and how do we do the doing mm. of actually make it happen it, it is that much more challenging and then my understanding is you subsequently went on to focus a bit on that and the kind of how you actually make it yep. come to life I did, yeah. So, so yeah, I left um, KPMG in 2020, actually in the middle of the pandemic, um, and moved to Agilisys, um, who, for those who are listening to this who, who won't have much of a feel for who Agilisys are, they were a digital transformation specialist for the public sector. So, right. And their legacy and history was around local and regional government and how do they support them to get more from technology. But as they'd matured as an organization, they'd built lots and lots of capabilities. 
but weren't necessarily in a place where, certainly from a data and analytics point of view, they could really join it up with the client issues, if you like, right. and go and have that conversation that I talked about earlier as a broker, really, to go to, to, to say, hey, I'm the partner for data and insight. I'm not going to talk to you about spreadsheets and SQL and <laughs> Python. And those. I'm going to talk to you about something else. And, and that was... That was my main reason for joining because I knew that they had those capabilities to actually implement a lot of the stuff that I'd designed in my previous role. Um, and all they needed was was somebody to, to sort of join that up. Um, in terms of how, coming back to your point about the jelly beans, right? So it's zero sum within public sector. It's, it, it's you've got to, everything is a trade-off. Every decision for every commissioner everywhere is a, we only have this much. It's effectively zero-based budgeting, yeah. right? And how do you make sure that you are able to deliver something over the longer term that's sustainable, but also keeps the attention short term? That's that's the classic challenge. And what I saw was, you know, people would intrinsically understand that data quality is a big issue. Does anybody get out of bed in the morning and want to spend half a million quid on improving data quality? Uh, no, <laughs> you know, nobody wakes up to do that. Even, even people that I work with, right, in the data space, it's sort of like, really. Um, if you can start to show that there are short-term benefits, you can deliver value quickly, and some of that, coming back to a point we we had earlier, is story-based. Mm. So you might you might not necessarily have perfect statistics to say actually the ROI on every pound spent was three point you know, three pounds ten or whatever. But if you can capture people's imagination with the sorts of things that you're able to do quickly, then you can get the buy-in for the longer term transformation, the stuff that's a bit, let's face it, grungy and people don't really want to do, like data quality improvement, right? But unless you show people the value, their list of priorities is too long. And I think that that people aspect of both showing people and also bringing people into the process, you can speak about the five whys and that, mm. that broker piece. We've talked a lot about the broker piece, the different organizations and how you bring together. It seems to me there's a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. You know, how do, we, how do we navigate the kind of disparate, decentralized collection, systems of systems yeah. that we're gonna, because even in the early stage, that's, that's part of the story we need to be telling, right? I mean, yeah. people aren't sat on the answers just waiting to be uncovered. Absolutely. So not to labor the point, but the the piece around being outcomes driven is something that any professional services firm will tell you. Yeah. What does it actually mean is the next question. If I was sat on the other side of the fence, what do you mean by that? And I'd, I'd ask them, why, how, <laughs> when, right? And I really drill into it. Um, and that's the most important point because if you're looking at an outcome such as the one I've used, or let's let's choose a different one. Let's look at vulnerable children, right? So we want to reduce the level, the numbers of children that end up looked after, for yep. example. Um, how do we do that in such a way that we can do it quickly and demonstrate some value? But as I said before, also start to build those longer-term foundations for that to be sustainable. Now, the old way of doing that was, right, what we need is data lake. Let's get all the data from all of these different organizations. Let's lob it all together, and then we'll hire somebody who's really bright, and they'll start to tell us what we should do about it, and it'll change the world. We've done that for probably most of my career, sort of <laughs> 10, 15 years, right? And going back to what I talked about earlier in terms of Greater Manchester, right? So 
very much pioneering and innovative in what they were trying to do around 2015, 2016. And they at the time said, actually, we're going to go with a federated model. We're going to keep we're going to let people keep the data where it is. We're going to we're not going to make them throw it all into the cloud in a in a monolithic data lake because people will naturally have concerns about that. Um, And people do see data, their data as a sort of a treasure, right? Um, for, for a couple of reasons. It's either really valuable to them or they're really worried about what people are going to say when they see it, right? Um, but actually, if you think about what the benefits of that model culturally and for a diverse system, as you were saying, with lots of different organizations who all have a perspective on the issue, if you can say to them, actually, what we're going to do is build the means in the middle to be able to pull that data so that we can see an individual in the round, but you're never going to have to send it wholesale. You don't have to sit there and, you know, back then it would have been CSVs, I'm sure, being landed in somebody's inbox. Right now it would be APIs, right? And you'd be sucking that data in on a batch level. And actually, one of the areas that GM have now gone on to look at in the last year or two has been around how do they leverage the data mesh um, as an instrument to enable them to underpin their decision-making from a health and social care perspective across a really fragmented and diverse system using a decentralized and federated architecture. And I think that's, I'm really excited to see what the benefit stories are. Coming back to my point around nobody will continue to invest unless there's pounds and pence. How have they been able to drive out ROI on that investment? I just want to go back a little bit yeah. and just unpack a couple of things that that we kind of touched on in passing. And the first is this notion of federation versus kind of monolithic or centralization. Mm-hmm. So this is different individuals or organizations continue to own their data or I mean what does fe- like what does federation look like for you in this space? In this space, uh, yeah. So what it looks like is you have effectively, and we can debate the nomenclature all day, but effectively (laughs) you have people who look after the data at each of the nodes within the mesh. And by a node, I just mean an organization, an individual, whoever. It could be a citizen, right? Um, We're not quite there yet, I would argue. (laughs) But, but, you know, we we might be um, not too far away. Um, Now, they then have control over their data. The only way the mesh works is if there is some sort of authority or several authorities who determine the standards and the way that information should be recorded such that it is interoperable and interchangeable across those different bodies. So what I really like about, and I and I think to some extent, I can see both lenses, um, but when you look at what the people who founded Data Mesh talked about, it was very much around... Um, analytics use cases. I see no reason why you can't operate, use a data mesh federated architecture where the data lives where it is. It's synthesized only when a query is made so that an individual or a group of people can see it and make a decision. Why can that not be operational? And people will be leaping up and down with their with their <laughs> placards saying security and IG and all of And I'm absolutely, they're all considerations. If I was, if I was designing it, they would be blocks on my page of things to think through doesn't mean that they're not solvable and we can't leverage that architecture to enable what we need so so i love this so just just to confirm my understanding i love this idea that you are moving away from a kind of 
centralized big pot in the middle, like stick everything in and have a kind of unified governance or structure, which is very difficult. And I, I love the the two things about like both it's a treasure, it's mine and it's intrinsically valuable. Um, but also this piece about it being weaponized ultimately against me, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you know, if you can see my KPIs, if you can see how I'm doing against my targets, then somehow this will be used as a stick to beat me. Yeah. I, I do think that my data has value is one of the kind of great myths. You know, I, I see people treating it like a dragon and gold. You know, if I just <laughs> gather enough of it together, it has some intrinsic magical property. Yeah. And actually when you were talking through the kind of data insight decision outcome, you see that in that value chain, the the data itself is is but a small part, and you know, like it's it's not intrinsically valuable unless it's contributing. So I love that. So we're moving away from that kind of centralized piece into a decentralized bit, where nodes on a network, or I guess for non-technical people, you think about telephones on an exchange or yep. whatever it might be, where there is a consideration around yes, governance and control and access and and so on. But fundamentally, you're then saying that the the interoperation between those and the bits and pieces you bring together is when a query is made. When you need to know something, can you access the right bits under the right rules, of course, uh, and with the right constraints, but from across this uh, mesh yeah. of bits and pieces. Correct. And that, and that's the that's the future of this kind of uh, cross team interoperability and and so on. Absolutely. And 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 there is so many reasons why that's the case, right? So. If you think about, and not to get too technical again, but if you think about the old sort of data warehouse architecture, you need to have the format agreed before it's even shared into that structure, right? We will only ingest it if it meets these controls. Yeah, That creates a ton of work because actually the way that Organization X describes a 16-year-old boy called John Smith will be diametrically opposed <laughs> yeah. to the way that the other organization does it right so you've got you've got to create this whole sort of you've got to implement into their source systems those schemas so that when you pull the data everything matches and it's all okay so there's a reason there there's another reason which is the way that public sector organizations procure solutions right which is something that people forget which is you're often locked in to five ten-year deals You've got suppliers who have given you a mandatory data format. You've signed up to that. You've got very little control once you've signed that initial deal and you're stuck for five to ten years. The wor in the worst cases, the buyers, the local authorities or the hospital trust or whoever, can't even access some of the data in those systems, right? So you've got this sort of weird, it's our data. Well, yes, it is, but we collect it on your behalf as a processor and you've got this, this sort of dynamic that actually makes it really quite hard to get a regional, let's say, in the case of Greater Manchester or any of the other 42 ICSs in the country, how do you pull together a single view when you're all wedded to different technology products with different mandated data structures and all of those sorts of things? Mesh allows you to say, actually, if you can do a mapping effectively from the way that your data is recorded to this centralized style, then we can interoperate across all of the nodes and off we go, right? So, you know, to creating almost the twin of the data but mapping it to something that is universally agreed means that we don't have to then go and start changing underpinning data structures. We can just mandate that this is how we're going to describe this thing and everybody else gets it and then you can use the data to make those decisions. I think that's so important, the kind of embracing of the complexity, you know, that 
these aren't greenfield problems and solutions, right? It's not like, oh, well, in an idealized world, we'd all use the same technology or we'd all have yeah. the same standard or you know, whatever it yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I love your point about the suppliers and you might be locked in. I mean, this is just the structure and this is just how it works. And recognizing that and then uh, having that kind of overlay that then says, use twin, but you know, you're virtualizing that data and then saying, right, we'll do, well, therefore abstracting it to yep. a level that at that level we can enable it to interoperate Absolutely. and play, provided it's trusted and we all agree and uh, you know and, and how we do it. And I love that. And and I also love that you were talking about where different people's data sits and the level of access they have. And it strikes me that that means that it's a, a journey we can each go on sort of potentially at slightly different speeds or in different levels. You know, it's not a kind mm -hmm. of, right, everyone, we either all move at once or no one moves at all. Yeah, You might have... You know, you, Rich, might have access to your data. I might have a third-party supplier who, as you, as you described it, yes, it's my data, but actually I have a deal with them where they gather it from my sensors and then sort of sell it back to me or, or give it back to me under some yep. service contract. But we can, we can approach this ecosystem at different times and in different ways. Is, is that fair? Uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely fair. And my advice to anybody looking to invest in a data mesh style architecture, a federated decentralized architecture would be to pick the two or three and don't just do one, pick two, three, four, maybe five use cases and work them through with every stakeholder that we've talked about today from the frontline person delivering it all the way back to the data engineer or the database administrator who, who really understands how all of that fits together, right? And what you'll find as you try to take those through is you know, two or three of them will die. They'll, for whatever reason, they'll be too hard. IG, as we've talked about, will kick in and say, no chance, not sharing, you know, or we're not ready, our data's not in the right state, those sorts of things. But one or two will make it through, and they'll be the ones that prove the model. And from there, you'll have people go, oh, hold on a minute. What about if we shared this then? Could you then see and understand this particular issue? and then take that decision, which would impact on that outcome. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Right, yeah, now I'm in for it now. And actually, it's about building that momentum and that, I, I said, I think I used the word right at the beginning, around consensus. Mm. So what are, we, what are we all here to do? And what are we trying to achieve? That's a massive question. But if you can break it down into specific use cases, such as vulnerable children, or even more specific, children who are eligible for free school meals, but their parents have no idea that there that there's a benefit that they can go and claim. Yeah, classic problem across the country. You take somewhere like Greater Manchester, half the kids go to a school in a different borough to the one that they live in. Right. Yeah. So they drop between the cracks. Right. Simple use case to solve, so long as you can share the information to enable you to see where that child goes and and where they're falling through a crack, and then alert the parent. It's not. It's not rocket science. It doesn't sound like rocket science when I describe it that way. And, and I think that's part of the gift, right, is, is being able to describe it that way so that you're not stuck in the data structure. Or You, know, you mentioned CSV files, so it's effectively spreadsheets <laughs> yeah. be, being sent around or yeah. APIs, which is kind of the, the way that data is exchanged between, between systems. Yeah, you're not stuck at that level. You're stuck at the, look, this is really quite simple. And, and we see that a little bit around things like the priority service user register and mm -hmm. things that's going on at the moment is exactly that. You know, one of the big challenges is do people know that they can be on this? Yeah. And then if they are on it, 
do all the different organizations that need to know. Uh, one of my colleagues, Gemma, was talking through a use case of at a home, there's a single mother, two children, one of whom has um, difficulties, right. which means that people coming into her home causes her panic and, and yeah. anxiety and so on. The other child breaks an arm and they call for an ambulance. Does the ambulance have any way of knowing that they're going into this yeah. scenario where there is another household member who will be adversely affected by their arrival? And actually, you know, you describe it, it's really simple, right? I mean, like the utility company know the people that are, if they've signed up to register. Yeah. Council might know, some healthcare providers might know. Does the ambulance crew, and I think this is back to your point about at the point you ask the query, you know, does, everyone doesn't need to know it all the time, but at the point that they're deployed, I guess, I don't know quite what the right word, deployed to the, yeah, yeah. To, to the site, um, do they have a way of flagging? Like, just be aware. Yeah. No, so, I mean, it, that sort of information sharing, you will find isolated examples of it right. across the UK public sector. But when I say isolated... You know, you could count, you could count them on one hand, probably. Um, yeah. You know, and some of the use cases we were looking at were you take something like Worcestershire, where the seven floods every couple of years or whatever, um, and the environment agency turn up and the utility companies and they have the whole gold command thing and it's yeah. a local resilience forum. You know, actually, do people who are on dialysis machines and therefore if the power goes off, they're in a spot of bother. Yeah. Um, do they know that they should be letting the utility companies know? And do the utility companies have the break glass moment to share? Yeah. In some places that works. In others, nobody's nobody's across that, right? And actually, for me, this this highlights a really important point that works at every single level. So, from your national organisations down to your regional, down to your local, down to the citizen, what's in it for me? If I share my data, how do you articulate the value proposition? So we all talk about data as the new oil and, and there's all sorts of narratives around it being a commodity. And actually in the future, we're all, in fact, we already do. So you take, you know, the classic examples of club card and nectar and all mm. of that. So many people may not understand or appreciate that effectively they're being paid for their data yeah. through benefits, right? The private sector's nailed that. They've been doing it for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. The way that the public sector approaches that is a lot less mature because it's not as it's not as sort of ruthlessly focused on if I spend 50 grand on an ad campaign, I will get X percent more clicks yeah. and therefore more revenue, right? So it doesn't it's not as sophisticated in the way that it tells the story. If it was, I think we would see generational shifts in the way that public services are delivered and I think we're going to see that quite soon so care.data 2010 one of the main reasons it failed was because they basically said we're going to put all of your data together so we can link it up and do research and things and everybody went it's a bit abstract sounds a bit scary feels a bit big brother not interested died a death right if they'd have said right Mrs Miggins if you give us these data points at this interval, we'll be able to guarantee you a GP appointment within 48 hours if you want one. What would the response have been? And, and I think this is so so interesting because it really flags me. So I, I'm aware, like you, that there are these, I'm going to say visionaries, because I think it is a seismic change. You know, mm -hmm. vision, so uh, there's um, uh, people like Auriga and Soprasteria and a few others who are starting to, starting to explore this and, and doing some... Uh, isolated pieces, but that idea that it's a seismic shift in how these are, yeah, this isn't 
this isn't an incremental step towards let, let's yeah. do a little bit. It's a seismic shift, I think, is really interesting mm. as a piece. But also how you explain the benefits, because some of them might be situational, mm. which, again, is a very hard story. You know, it's not that immediate. I swipe my Tesco club card and I instantly get money off. Other club cards are available. <laughs> I, like, I don't, you know, I don't instantly get money off, but it's that kind of in an emergency we do keep your dialysis machine, you know, like you get priority uh, distribution or transmission of, of electricity. I, I think that that narrative is so important because otherwise it seems to me we're, we're going to be in a situation where as the year progresses, it'll start to get cold and weather will get more extreme again and whatever. And, and people die. I mean, mm. people die because we aren't mm -hmm. able to situationally share this information. And your phrase about the break glass thing, I think, is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and I think well, and I think there there are many there are many high profile examples of where this goes wrong and it does cost a life. And I'll go back to the West Mercia example that I used earlier um, from many moons ago in my career. I was asked to go and talk to the chief constable about data sharing, and I was a consultant um, at the time working at KPMG. Um, and I basically went off with my classic set of slides. I was like, here's your imperatives, here's the why. <laughs> you know, had it all. I, I got my economic imperative, my social one, and my democratic one, and all this. I was like, you know, I'm across this. This is my this is my game. And he was the nicest, one of the nicest people I've ever met. And he sat there and, you know, nodded a lot, and he, he seemed very warm. And then he goes, Rich, thanks for that. And I thought, oh, gosh, here, what's going to happen now? And he goes, do you know what? I think you're missing one thing from your slide. Um, and he goes, I think there's a moral imperative here for us getting good at this. And I said, okay. Um, and he goes, look, I've been doing this for 30-odd years. I've been a chief constable for 15. Every single serious case review I've ever sat on in the top two conclusions were if information had been shared more proactively with the right people in advance of the issue, it could have either been lessened in severity or avoided altogether. And the average cost to the public sector, well, to, to the taxpayer, of a serious case review is now well over a million quid each time. So if you put that in pounds wow. and pence, that's a cost. That's to say nothing of what happened to the individual. You know, Baby P, yeah. Victoria Climbier, all of those, all of those horrific incidents, they they really have a lack of information sharing and triangulated perspective at their core and it's it's quite irrefutable and it was it's probably in my career the most impactful conversation I've ever had. No, I, I see that. I mean it it's amazing how you, you go from the entirely right, you know, you've got the kind of legal, ethical, proportional, but that moral imperative is so important in it. And mm. it is that a driver for you? I mean you you're now out there as a data and analytics leader, talking to people at local government in public sector is the moral imperative one of those things that drives you? Because yeah. I mean, if we're going to make size and shift, this is going to take a hell of an effort, right? I yeah, it, uh, yeah. It's the I would say it's the main thing that drives me. It's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, it sort of was before that conversation, but but to have it crystallised in that way, if you can get this to work, Rich was effectively what he was saying. Yeah. Then you're going to be able to help impact on this. And I sort of I've never felt more motivated. Right, getting the train back to London, I'm thinking, right, this, you know, I'm after it now. Uh, yeah. Regardless of what he's paying us, I am I'm going to make this work. And um, 
I've carried that with me. So when I was, I mentioned the Metropolitan Police, but did a piece of work with them. And we looked at the tasking decisions from the violent crime um, commander. So how do I know if I'm making good decisions or not? Because I'm making them all the time and limited data and all of that sort of thing. Um, And what we were able to do with some fairly way beyond my comprehension, but some fairly advanced analytics was effectively create a counterfactual. So but using statistics in a in a fairly sophisticated way. So you can't obviously say, right, we're going to have these 50 people who are going to get the drug and these 50 people who can't. You can't do that with violent crime in London. What you can do is simulate what would have happened if you didn't do anything. Wow. When we showed the commander the impact of his decisions using that simulation, he'd only asked us to look at, I think it was two weeks or something like that. He went through it all with us. Um, and there was myself there trying to do a bit of a translator thing. I'd got the boffin who built the the model with me as well. Um, and he said, if I give you two months of these decisions, can you start to help me answer some questions? He's, and then he got his notepad out. He goes, I want to know how the weather affects it. I want to know what time of day I'm making the decision, whether I'm in uh, NSY, which is New Scotland Yard, or whether I'm at home, and all of these sorts of things. And for me, that that moment where he'd sort of been a bit let's say skeptical. Yeah. And then we showed him the power of the data in helping him make better decisions and he's suddenly opening himself up really to potentially quite damaging results for him as an individual, but because he cared about what he was doing, he wanted to get better. And for me that that started to change the model of what it means to be accountable as well. Actually, are you more accountable if you can explain an outcome or are you more accountable if you can say actually, I can demonstrate to you that I learn from all of my decisions because I've built this loop and now I get better and better and better over time. What, what wonderful leadership to yeah. recognise that evolution of trust, uh, both in, in you and the team as consultants, but also the, the, the technology. So again, the socio-technical yeah. bringing together, but the evolution in trust in them that enabled you to start, hymns or rather, sorry, to be able to start saying, okay, actually... I can see this and I'm willing to make myself more vulnerable and expose myself yeah. to analysis and, and so on. And if that moral imperative is one of the things that gets you out of bed in the morning, what's the thing that keeps you going? Like where where is the the hope or the vision or the or the bit that says we can get there and th- and yeah, this isn't this isn't a quixotic uh mission. Yeah. I think I think it comes from I hesitate to use the word, but it's the best one I can think of. Sort of, I am almost evangelical about what we can do with data and what the untapped potential is. But also, for the public sector organisations that I work with, the barriers for them to being able to do just that, right? So, when we've when we've chatted before, we've talked about things like, um, you know, global corporations investing in things like VR caves and, mm. you know... Um, a whole data mesh architecture that's push button deployable and these sorts of things you know that's a million miles away for the public sector in the uk so how do we get them how do we support them to be able to tap into that potential and that benefit is i sort of see that as my life's work and actually i'll probably always be a bit disappointed (laughs) (laughs) because there'll always be a new barrier you know it might be I think the Tony Blair Institute and then Cabinet Office said about a month or so ago, you know, leadership skills are still missing because you're waiting for the cohorts of people who really understand the potential of this world to get up to those leadership levels, right? So that's a big problem. Even being able to access 
skills, data engineering skills. So you go online at the moment, you look at what a data engineer might make in public sector, I don't know, 40, 50, let's say, a year. If I'm paying in as your data engineer um, to then deploy them as a consultant, it's probably double. Yeah. So how do we help them bridge those gaps? How do we, how do you think differently? You know, and again, I'll come back to the Met, but actually you can tap into some of those skill sets. You just have to think very differently about what it means to have a good employee. They might come in for a year or two years tops, and then they might go to Morgan Stanley and cash their chips, right? Yeah. And say, I've done this. But they, but they're actually, if you look at the younger generations, I hate to stereotype, but coming through, there is that ESG agenda. Yep. And you can tap into that as a public sector and say, actually, you know, for your first gig in in the real world, you've done all your theory, come and deploy it. Why not deploy it where you can you can make a real difference? And so sometimes you have to rip up some of the prevailing models, I think, and think very creatively about how you solve the challenges. And that, that for me is the constant challenge. And it, the pace at which you need to solve these problems is speeding up. Yeah used to be able to say, here's a data transformation program, 18 months and you'll be here. Here's a Sunray diagram. Yeah. Does not work anymore. Yeah. And I think that call to arms is brilliant about you're doing different things, you're ripping up the model, both at the kind of horizontal, what you're doing across organizations, but then also vertical within those different departments, how you're looking at hiring, yeah. you know, and and suddenly that consensus and coalition, the willing might look very different. It might be, you know, we'll take a recent grad as you say, for a couple of years, and ordinarily would think about investing in them over a 20 or a 30 year time horizon. And they might spend the first two years doing learning the three letter acronyms that we use <laughs> in our industry and not much more. Yeah. Yeah, and actually saying, actually, we can do this differently if we rethink it, if we do different things, if we push it this in a different way. Exactly. Can, can we look at that? I think that's, I think, exactly. Um, and one, one little thing I would say is um, today, actually, governments published their AI white paper. And in it, there's lots of very hard to disagree with policy statements, right, in terms of things we should be doing. Um, and my commentary on it, um, for those that are interested, is the what we will have to rip up there is the old model of consultation. Things are moving too quickly. So we can't do a, let's have a 90-day consultation from the cabinet office on how we should leverage X, Y, and Z in A, B, and C sector. Just won't work. Look at Chat GPT three versus four months. Yep. So so we're going to have to create a culture, comes back to that point around a different model of accountability that is decide and learn. We can't consult with everybody in the in the way that very nobly we've tried to do as sort of government decision makers for many, many years. We're going to have to trial things based on the potential ROI and the value. And then be very honest where we've got it wrong and learn from it and go again. And that's that's going to be a very different model, I think, for societally, really, for us to get used to. Because that's going to impact everybody, journalists, decision makers, corporate bodies trying to provide services, everybody. Rich, I, I think that's that's brilliant. I'm going to have to bring it, bring it to a, a wrap here. I know that, so these thoughts and observations and commentary, you've got a blog starting up that you will be going through your LinkedIn. I have, program. yeah, it'll be, yeah. Excellent, uh, so I'll, we'll put a link to that in the episode uh, notes uh, so everyone can follow along because uh, I think what you're, what you're proposing, what you're evangelizing, and I think it is a great word, what you're evangelizing here, 
is absolutely right. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing the impact that you're going to have. So thank you so much uh, for being with us. Really appreciate it. Really love the chat. No, thank you for having me. So thank you to our guest, Rich Walker. Rich's blog will be linked below. Please do go and read it. He's got an amazing uh, way of talking about this and what we can do and how we can move forward. Thank you to Runway Soho, who are hosting us today. The Arctic's podcast is a Snaffle podcast production. And if you know someone who is bringing people and technology together to make real-world impacts, we'd love to hear their story and chat with them about it. Contact us at podcast at iotics.com. Thank you so much for listening.